Welcome to this MTech Access webinar. At MTech Access, we provide health economics and outcomes research and market access services from strategy through to implementation. Get in touch today to discuss your market access goals. First, though, I hope you enjoy the webinar. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining our latest Global Whispers webinar. Please see our YouTube channel for past webinars and look out for more content from us in the future. The topic today is product commercialization strategy for pharma and medtech in the US. I'm Claire Foy, Director of Global Market Access at MTech Access. We have a great mix of audience today across industry and healthcare systems. And I'd like to particularly welcome our global affiliate partners who play a key role in the work that we do. For anyone that doesn't know us very well, MTech Access is a global specialist health economics, outcomes and market access consultancy. We have a track record in expert delivery and provide specialist support to pharmaceutical and medtech clients. And we work as collaborative partner to healthcare systems worldwide. Thank you for joining. Today, we focus on commercialization strategy for pharma and medtech in the US. And I'm delighted to welcome our guest speaker, Janice McLennan. Welcome Janice, could you please start by taking a moment to introduce yourself and your background? Great, well I'll certainly do that Claire. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to participate with you in this webinar. Um, so what's relevant? Probably I have, I'm, I have two companies, both of which I'm the uh, founder and CEO of. I've really both are focused on the industry um, which I've been focused on for over 30 years. And um, my, my area of focus is strategy. So very pertinent to the topic we do today. And really the, the emphasis is all about helping teams to do strategy um, so that over time they can do it better themselves. So that, that's what I do. Perfect, thank you. Um, okay, so let's dive right in. I'd, I'd like to start by talking about the complexity of the US system. I know our clients and our listeners will be quite interested to discuss this topic. So could you start by outlining some of the challenges of launching a pharma or medtech product in the US? And tell us a bit about structure and the challenges there. Cool. So let's start maybe off just with some of the, the um, challenges I would say, first of all, the biggest challenge is getting regulatory approval um, and, and the regulation is changing all the time. So that, that makes it quite challenging. Um, the, what's interesting, that approval process is different for pharmaceuticals compared to medtech. So with medtech, um, you get classified, um, any medtech product gets classified as class one, two or three and class three and that's based on risk, you know, risk of doing harm um, to the patient. And the class three requires clinical trials. So that's quite different to what's happened in the past, whereas class two, all they need is, um, a, I think it's called a 510K clearance, but basically mm -hmm. regulatory clearance. And all they've got to do is prove equivalence to something similar on the marketplace. And then class one, really they just provide a bit of information and so forth there's there's not a lot to it um so that's one the regulatory process uh, regulatory approval is challenging the other thing that i think is 
also really challenging is market access and coverage. Because in the US, you now have got GPOs, what I think of at the top of the tree, um, IDNs, which are effectively, if I use the word covered, so the, the uh, GPOs negotiate with the suppliers for great prices. And the IDNs then who associate with that GPO benefit from those prices. And then within the IDNs, you can have your individual hospitals. Um, each hospital probably has its own value committee. And then you've got your key stakeholders at the bottom, you know, healthcare professionals and other interested parties. So, so clearly access is quite complex in that environment. Um, then there's pricing, which again is becoming, I think the US historically was always a market where people felt they could get away with pretty decent prices, whereas that is coming under challenge at the moment. So there's a lot more pressure um, and scrutiny on pricing. And um, yeah, so, so that's something people have to take care of. You've got regulations like uh, the Sunshine Act, where you have to disclose any payment you make to physicians. So that that is a consideration because we're clearly consulting with people as we develop drugs and, and do things. So there's something there. And then there's the uh, different stakeholders that we have to engage with over time have, you know, there's just a plethora of different stakeholders. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is all those different stakeholders, different needs, different ways to engage with them, different evidence that they need. OK. And are there any changes happening in the US that, that you could describe to our listeners? Anything that we need to be aware of? So, again, you know, we live in a world, I think, a world of change, really. Um, so the, the requirement for evidence is evolving. Um, there's a real emphasis today on real world evidence as part of any submission um, and also patient reported outcomes are increasingly important. Um, the, 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 the shift, the change, which I think is really important, is towards value based care rather than volume based care. Um, and in fact, there's I don't know how many people are familiar with I mean, they call it an organization called ICHOM. I-C-H-O-M, but they're doing a lot of work around value-based care, and I think it's worth looking at. It tends to be more for um, disease states, but I think it's really interesting because they've, they've engaged with patients and physicians around the world to develop what are the relevant value-based outcomes. So I think, or patient outcomes, you know, the outcomes that we should be focusing on. So I think that works really, really interesting. Um, the other change is really around digitalization of healthcare. We're sharing a lot more patient information. There are all sorts of cybersecurity risks associated with that that need to be considered, and a lot more regulation coming along in that area. Um, environmental sustainability, a big thing now. You know, we used to get away. If you think about inhalers and things, uh, they, they are no longer really desired. Um, so that's something that's important. Um, and then probably also the, the, the move towards personalized healthcare, I think is a change and has implications for all sorts of things like helping identify, you know, a tighter target population, et cetera, that you might want to develop your particular offering for. 
Okay, a lot of things in there and very interesting. Thank you. And not all of those are unique to the US, particularly the environmental sustainability, digitalization, yeah, personalized healthcare, all topics that will be interesting to people um, in multiple markets. So thanks for, for mentioning those. All right, so as a strategy expert, let's move on to talking a bit about the optimal pre-launch strategy, focusing on pharma first. So could you take us through some of the key early decisions that pharma companies have to make when they're preparing for a US launch? Sure, and in fairness, Claire, with, so when we focus on pharma first, what I'm going, why, can I make a suggestion? Should mm -hmm. I talk about what's common? Because actually the decisions are common, whether it's pharma or medtech. Yeah you engage with is going to be slightly different right so the if i just start with the decisions which i would say whether you have a pharma product or a medtech product these are the key early decisions you need to be making um so i'll start off with where are you going to focus where's the unmet need what's your target you know target market unmet need that making that decision that choice is really important early very early on because that guides everything else um mm -hmm. after that i would say vision um and the vision there is what what does success look like but not from an internal perspective but from an external perspective so what does success look like for your customers for your patients you know so from that external i think that's really important and when you describe your vision i think the other thing that's interesting and an area for improvement is making sure that that vision is what i would call competitive in other words you feel better placed to realize that vision than anybody else if that makes sense so you don't have something that's very generic but something that really lends itself to your strength so that that would be next um, after that things like positioning and value proposition really important those choices are made very early on because they're going to influence your data strategy. They're going to influence which patients you study your drug in, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's quite fundamental. Um, the other decision we have to make is where we're going to focus for growth. So, for example, there might be an area where you've got to change practice. Um, so let's imagine it was just an, I'm thinking medtech, an arrogant solution, you know, mm. something you use when you do um, procedures. If people are using a lot of homebrew and you're trying to switch them away from homebrew to premix, or, you know, think about the good old drips, you know. So there are lots of things where, where you might have to change behavior um, before you actually get them to adopt your particular product. Um, in pharma, you might need to increase diagnosis. You know, some there are lots of disease states where people sort of circle around the system for many years. So that's something we have to understand to decide where the areas we have to focus for growth and how we're going to create value wherever those areas are. Um, the other thing early on, and it's I'm mentioning this because a lot of these things aren't decided early on. So there's the tension. But the other thing I would suggest is life cycle management, how you're thinking about evolving what you bring into the marketplace. Because sometimes uh, for those medical devices that actually are classified as three, they might need to do studies in a different device if it's going to, you know, so, so that it has implications. So you need to think as you're mapping out your clinical trial program, you need to think about when you're going to introduce different doses, different devices, 
um, indications. When are we see, you know, which one should we study first? So there are a lot of considerations like that that need to be made. And then I'm going to say last but not least, pricing. And <laughs> because pricing is all about getting that balance right. But even when we think about patient, you know, access to whatever it is you are bringing to the marketplace, you've got to think about where that patient's presenting. You know, is it a hospital? Is it out in the community? Is it in a... a, a a specialist hospital or just a general hospital. Um, who is that patient? Are they insured, underinsured, uninsured? Now, all these factors are going to influence some of the decisions you make. So I think that's really critical. Yeah, that's a great summary, actually. And you've described it in a sequential way, but I think in reality, a lot of those things are being done at once, and you, you know one thing fails everything fails so it's quite it's quite a challenge so i suppose it'd be interesting to to hear your perspective on how companies can get the right balance in preparing for all of those different things how the teams can work together and collaborate for success yeah great so that that's it and this is where i think i'm going to introduce some differences between pharma and medtech maybe um but first of all i think what's really important is identifying those internal stakeholders that really need to participate at some point along the journey in the development of the strategy or the refinement because it's constantly going to be refined. Um, I typically think of really breaking all stakeholders into four different discrete populations. Think about the core group. The core group do all the heavy, heavy lifting, um, are going to do the bulk of the initial thinking. Uh, come up with hypotheses or things they want to put in front of somebody else. Um, then you have an extended team. This is where I think it's really important to go out to people in the market. So if you're a global team, even, and you're working with your US stakeholders, they are part of that extended team, without a doubt. Um, and, and really, you want to use the extended team, in my view, to advance your thinking, to push your thinking, to make it better. When you involve the extended team, you're going to involve them for one of two reasons. It might be because you want more ideas, more choices. You know, you want them to add idea, add choice to the, mm. the conversation. Or maybe you want to actually start making choices. So you've got to be very clear when you hold a meeting or when you engage with anybody in the extended team, that they understand what you need from them at that particular point in time. Right? Mm -hmm. Is it divergent thinking? Is it convergent thinking? So I think that's really important. Then you've got your subject matter experts. So you need to know who are they or who might they be, who you would go to at different points along the journey because they have a particular expertise that you need at mm -hmm. a point. And then not not least important are the actual uh, sponsors, the people ultimately going to sign off on the decisions mm -hmm. that you're making, but also thinking about engaging them along the way. Again, I would suggest to push thinking to make sure that when you ultimately present, there's no surprises, um, that you don't present as a show and tell, but actually they've been part of it, you know, so that they feel they've been included along that way. So those are the internal stakeholders, and that would be true 
for both medtech and pharma. What is interesting, I've got to say, I, this is where I think pharma is probably a little bit ahead in the way they engage with their internal stakeholders. My experience in medtech, every time I have an opportunity to facilitate a strategy meeting in medtech, it's often the first time they've ever done something like that mm. come together. So what they're more likely to do in today's world, convention today, is more likely that somebody in commercial is sitting at their desk doing things and then emailing it out, you know. So it's not a process that's inclusive in the way that mm. I think it would be. So I think that's quite interesting. Um, and then clearly there are external stakeholders that we absolutely need to engage with along the way. So you've got your patients. Increasingly, it's super important, whether it's a medical device or a pharmaceutical product, to actually get patient input into whatever it is you're developing. Um, payers, early, 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 want to understand what they feel they need, what is the evidence they need, and they would want to see in order to be willing to cover your product or your device or, you know, so you, that engagement is really critical. Clearly, healthcare professionals, typically through key opinion leaders, you know, we need their thinking and to be engaging with them from early along the process. Regulators today as well. I mean, companies are going to regulators quite early to make sure that the way they think about that clinical trial design is appropriate and is going to be approved. Um, and then if you, from a medical device perspective, um, GPOs, so their payer, their payer community, I think they've got GPOs to think about. And so mm -hmm. should be engaging with them, I think pretty early on as well, to understand what they would want to see in order to support that. So I think that's it. I'm trying to think, is there anybody else that I might? I'm sure, I mean, there are going to be others, but those are kind of the, the biggies. Yeah. I'm glad you said patients first as well. I think it's really important that we remember that's why we're all here, is to help patients to improve their lives. So that's really helpful. Um, you mentioned earlier on about how unmet need was a very important part of the strategy, defining that unmet need, making sure you have a product that's going to fulfill an unmet need. How can companies, and that, that would go for medtech and pharma companies, how can they prepare for the competitive landscape at launch, knowing that that will probably change over the intervening years? And how, how do you advise clients to prepare for all of those changes and making sure that their product's future-proof? So that, that's such a great question. And uh, what I think is this is all about having foresight, for want of a better description, right, as opposed to insight. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So the whole foresight piece is actually, first of all, understand who your competition are going to be because they busy. And today we know because everybody has to publish clinical, you know, you've got to register what you do. So we know who's out there. We know that the, the type, you know, if, if, um, Becton Dickinson or Medtronic or Pfizer or, you know, any, you understand who these people are. You understand a little bit about how they approach competition. So there's there's an understanding of that company and its culture and how it typically goes about doing things, which I think is really important. Um, 
And that will help you understand how quickly they are likely to, if I can use the word drive adoption, change mm -hmm. behavior. Um, because really, it's not the competitor that I'm bothered about when I'm thinking about my strategy. It's my customer, right? It's those patients and those physicians and, and those payers. And, and those are the people that I'm going to be engaging with. And I need to be making sure that what I'm doing for them is more valuable than what my competitors are doing. So it's always, so we go, we always go back to the unmet need, but different stakeholders have different needs. I'm always thinking, how am I going to create differential value for that stakeholder over and above? that being created by the others mm -hmm. and making assumptions about what they might do based on what I've seen them do. Right. But it's, it's, it's just, it's fascinating. I think it's really fascinating. And only yesterday I read um, about Eli Lilly. I don't know if you've seen the coverage So they, they've got one of these weight loss drugs, mm -hmm. which I think really approved back end of last year. Yesterday, there's an announcement that they've created this telehealth portal where patients can get direct access to the drug because they've set up doctors who can interview and advise patients virtually. Yeah. And they have to wait for you to get, you know, I think that's that's huge. Now they yeah. that wasn't a decision they took after they got approved. They've been thinking about doing that for five or six years. You know what I mean? That, yeah. That idea is way back then. Yeah. yeah. But they've actually brought it to fruition two months after the drug was approved. And yes. Have some, yeah. have some strategies that you can put into practice as and when needed. Yeah. 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 And I think there's something to be said about making sure you understand the patients and you are addressing that need primarily as well as thinking about the competition. So I think that was really helpful insight there. Thank you. And um, you touched on this earlier about the possible trend to sort of speed up access to drugs and how some companies are trying to accelerate the pre-launch timeline, get faster access to patients and also obviously generate some revenue. Um, we all know that it's very costly to develop new interventions. And um, how can companies go about doing this kind of thing effectively? So I think a lot of the speeding up is an R&D, as in innovating research and development processes, doing phase two, phase three in parallel, you know, or your um, with medical devices, doing your, you know, it's just making decisions earlier and doing things faster and, and taking more risk, I think is the truth, taking more risk. But I think from a perspective, what's interesting is there's a risk that R&D are innovating and commercial aren't. Mm. So we could potentially slow down processes because we are saying, oh, we haven't planned to talk to payers yet. And you've suddenly I've got something I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like you've sped up that R&D process and my process hasn't followed. Uh, my process is when we do a bit of positioning research, it takes us six months. Yeah. Six months is too long now. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? So I think yeah, our commercial yeah. need to change quite dramatically 
to support that idea of getting product to market earlier. And, and because we tend to operate in silos, you know, commercial doing what they're doing over here, I'm not sure they think about the implications of R&D doing what they're doing, speeding things up. And then suddenly you get this crunch point where there's tension because R&D want to go straight into phase two and you haven't done your positioning research yet. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's yeah. definitely something I would say everybody needs to keep on and you you really need to make sure that those processes support each other. Um, the other thing from a commercial perspective, the industry, you know, we're really quite compliant. Um, some companies have got very consensus-driven culture, for want of a better description. The, the challenge with that is the number of bodies or committees that you have to circulate with. with. That can take time. Earlier this week, I was in the US, and they were saying what's really interesting is they can't actually agree a deadline. Because when they can get approved, it depends on when that those people come together to have a meeting. Mm. And you think, isn't that the wrong way around? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They should come together because, you know, so it's just really yeah. a lot of behaviors that are in play that need to change for us to be more effective, more efficient, and do things that are in the interests of the patient, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you make a good point there about collaborating, not working in silos. My next question is about um, making sure <clears throat> companies have the right evidence to satisfy all the stakeholders. And that, of course, is another example of collaboration between teams, making sure everything's available on time. What, what would you say on that? So I think this is back to you've got to get payer input early. And like, so to me, I would... I would not want to go into phase two design without having extensively consulted with healthcare professionals, payers and patients and regulators probably. Because what's quite interesting, if you are successful with your phase two study, you are unlikely to change that trial design for phase three. Mm. So if you've missed the opportunity going into phase two, the data you need for coverage, you're going to have to wait a long time for. It's going to be extra cost. Do you know what I mean? You're going to have to invest in something you haven't planned for. So, so that understanding that I think is really important. Also, when you engage, if you know, if I think about that pay engagement, for example is what you're trying to understand is how they're making choices from their perspective. And they might be thinking about the type of data they need in a way that you're not thinking about it. Mm. Um, I think you can agree with them, possibly, she says, not having ever had a conversation with a payer in my life, but I think you can agree with them that, that, that this is the standard of care that you could be using even if you anticipate, you know, so it's not today's standard of care, but based on everything they know, would they want you to be evaluating yourself against, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's, it's
it's really important. And for mid-click um, companies, you know, if you think about this GPO, so a lot of the ideas, well, not a lot, there are ideas who are not allowed to bring in drug until the GPO, until there's a GPO contract in place. So you need to know which GPO, you know what, IDNs demand that because how you approach that is very different to where maybe you're allowed to use it, but you still ideally want a GPO contract, you know. So, so there are going to be all these, if I use the word, local variances across the US, which you kind of need to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Okay, um, so we were talking about patient access to new products and the challenges of that you, you touched on. Obviously in the US we have a situation where most of the population is insured, but some are uninsured. We have different settings for different products. Could you talk a bit about um, patient access and how this might yeah. vary for different populations and what companies can do to ensure their innovations do meet, do come to the patients? Yeah, so I, I think understanding the patient population you're serving is at the heart of it, which is why right at the beginning I started with the yeah. patient. And I think we need to understand those patients deeply. Like, if if whichever disease status, what is the predominant socioeconomic, you know, how many of them can afford or likely to be insured? Um, how old are they? What are the age, you know, because they may have access to Medicaid or, or Medicare. Or, you know, so we need to understand how they're likely to access their treatments from a, a financial perspective, um, because mm -hmm. we need programs in place to help support that access. But there's also the access, so to me there's the finance funding piece, but there's also the can they get to the treatment piece. You know, there are communities who don't engage with the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So how how do we help them if this disease state is more likely to be there? You know, how what are we going to do? Do we try and get them into the system or do we try and serve them wherever they are? Mm -hmm. you know, and I I have worked in areas where people are saying, well, maybe we can work with the church. You know, if that's where they are, that's where we go, instead of trying to get them to come to where we are. So so I think there are lots, you know, that that deep understanding of patients, you know, who are you serving, where are they likely to be, what are their attitudes and beliefs about their disease, about their treatment, about mm -hmm. medical devices, I don't, you know, is about procedures. Um, all, all of that we need to understand in order to start making some decisions about how we're going to make sure this device or this this product or this technology actually realizes its potential. Yeah, that, that's a good example. I've, I've seen an example where healthcare professionals went to hair salons and barbers to talk to people because they're, they're in there having their hair done, they're kind of yep. sitting there talking to the hairdresser and they get talking about blood pressure or something and then they can have their blood pressure monitored. It's, it's quite interesting, go to where the patients are rather than waiting for them. You can be a lot more creative, right? Yeah. A lot more yeah. 
and and I, I I do think I keep on saying to myself, you know, this idea of people always have to come and do things our way is so wrong. Yeah. You know, we've got to understand who, you know, and I think the same is with, you know, if you just think about as you're developing a drug, you're shaping thinking possibly, you need to share your science, you know, there's a lot of communication that needs to happen with these stakeholders out there, even anywhere before you get to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And are we doing that in a way that works for the people we're trying to to serve? I'm not sure yeah. that we and the language we use. That's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point. Okay, we talked a lot about pre-launch and what companies can do to get a product on the market, but of course, that the story doesn't end there. What about post-launch up to loss of exclusivity? What kind of strategies do companies employ? How does it differ for pharma and medtech? What are the kinds of things that you would recommend to clients to consider in this period? So I'm a great I'm a great um, believer in I'm going to say branding brand building. So the long thinking about things strategically. I think there's a real chat. There's a real danger that many companies are too short-term focused. So they're busy worrying about quarter-quarter quarter results mm. instead of actually thinking about where do we want to be and what are we doing to make sure we are where we want to be in five years' time or six years' time, even when they're on the marketplace. So I think that is something people really need to think about, is investing what I call in the brand, which is not going to necessarily give you sales tomorrow, mm. but will off longer term, and investing in, what would you call them, um, initiatives, which are really like Brand, you know, where you're getting sales in, you do something and you you generate sales quite quickly. So it's finding that I think is really really critical. Uh, I mentioned life cycle management should really start being thought about, but the whole idea of how do we constantly innovate I think is really important. For with medtech, I mean clearly you've got design, you've got lots of things you can do to, to really improve, you know and all you have to do is think about computers, but I do know scanners, you know, think about any medtech products. What they looked and felt like five years ago is very different to the look and feel of them today. They're all quite slick, they're quite, you know, so, so there's a lot of thought that needs to go on to how we're constantly innovating. Um, is there anything we can do with the formulation maybe to pick out some of the toxicities? Um, introduce it in a different way, change the dosing. I mean, there's so many things that we should always be looking. If we say be constantly dissatisfied with the product you've got and think about how we can improve it to increase its value for both the health practitioners and the patients, I think that's really important. And along the same lines, you know, evolving that value problem the very fact you get to market with a value proposition doesn't mean that that's going to keep you safe. You know, you have to be thinking ahead. What more value can we be creating? Yeah. And for this marketplace. Yeah, that, that's a really good one, actually. And the next question I was going to ask has come in from the audience, and maybe it's related to this because they were asking 
what are the main pitfalls and how to avoid making those mistakes in the US? Mm. So I think the thing that derails most strategies, right, or dare I say winning strategies, is going to be about stakeholders, stakeholder management. And where things go horribly wrong is where you've got important stakeholders who feel either unseen, unheard, or misunderstood. And therefore, they don't buy into and support your strategy. And that can make life extremely difficult. It can make decision making the time to get a decision much longer because they're asking you to go back and do more work. They are, you know what I mean? You you just haven't done what you needed to do up front to keep it flowing. So I would say that to me is one thing that's really important. And if we go back to medtech, maybe that's a massive, I mean, it's a massive opportunity in pharma, but I think it's a huge opportunity in medtech. So if in my experience where I've been working with projects in medtech, those relationships are not always good relationships. They're not healthy. Sometimes people just, you know, functions disrespect each other <laughs> because they're not listening to each other or they don't under, you know. So, so I think that to me would be a huge, huge area. The other area for me is is early decision making. So, not many people are actually, when when I say people, not many companies are good at getting position done before they go into phase two. Mm. They say, oh, well, that might cost a lot of money and what if it fails? But if we think about positioning is shaping your phase two, mm. it's going to make you either, you know, so, so that early decision-making, really a lot of the strategic thinking up front Early on, even before you've got something that you know is going to be effective and safe, um, I think understanding how you might make it accessible to patients. Are there technologies, you know, so today, if diagnostics is an issue, at the same time as developing your drug, you should be looking at biomarkers, you know, you should, the other things you need to look at to maximize the potential of that, you know, make sure that. <laughs> gets to the people quickly, is adopted quickly. Um, so so to me, it's probably those two things, stakeholder engagement piece mm -hmm. and make invest in making decisions early. And, and one of the reasons I would say why that should not be a problem is because most companies do have follow-on assets. So they're just prioritizing. They think this one has the most potential, but if it falls, if it fails, they invariably have an interest in that disease state or in that area or a tech company. You know, take somebody like AbbVie, they're immersed in diabetes and, you know, cardiovascular health, that's what they do. So any learning is valuable. Yeah. You can share it with your other assets and other parts of the business. So so I think that's important is to think about as investing in your understanding of patients and stakeholders in that area and that can be used anywhere and yeah. therefore really does that make sense yeah absolutely no I think that's great 
Um, and thank you for your insight so far. I think we're coming to the close of our time now, but I just thought one final question. Um, from the benefits of your experience over 30 years, what lessons can companies learn from your experience? Have you got a couple maybe of anonymous examples of things that um, companies might wish to learn from? Yeah, I think, well, I I for me, the learning is going to be background engagement. And I think this whole thing about being very intentional about who you're engaging when, being very clear about the purpose of that engagement. I mean, everybody's time is valuable. That's how, that's my starting point, right? So why would I waste time here with somebody? Ask them for input and I'm going to ignore it. Don't ask them. Yeah. So when you ask for input, you, you, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean you agree with it, but you process that input and end up, you know, actively considering it, et cetera. So I think that's really important. And then that mixture of online and offline, you know, I think is really important. Allow people, people of different personalities, make sure that you design the way you're doing things to cater for different people. Mm -hmm. So you need face-to-face, -face, not a question. But you can also do a lot virtually. You can do a lot offline. But mm -hmm. what are you when and how so I think I use the word designing how you're going about your strategy development is huge and most people don't they slot into a process this is what we do they're not thinking about it they're not thinking about the personalities involved and how they map it to make mm. it a better experience for those people so that's one thing and the other thing I'd see or say is we talk about creating value for our customers Value comes through better patient outcomes. It comes through better patient, improving that patient experience. It comes from reducing the cost in healthcare, and it comes from you know improving the healthcare professional experience. So I'm four ways in my head, but there are four areas where I'm looking for how can I create value. That's been so useful thank you thank you for a fascinating discussion i've really enjoyed it today i think you've got lots of good insights to share and hopefully the audience have enjoyed it too so thank you to everyone for joining um, we'll follow up with any of the questions that we didn't get to later on and um, we'd also be happy to signpost anyone who wants any further information so please do get in touch if you want to continue the conversation um, yeah all that remains is to say thank you to everyone and thanks janice and we'll hopefully see you all again soon Great. Thanks, Claire. Great questions, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for watching. If you'd like to find out more about our work or how we could support your market access goals, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk or visit our website at mtechaccess.co.uk.